coming up on the podcast today, we begin our revisitations of our favourite John Pertwee stories. Today was my turn to pick, and it's something I first seen in the mid-90s on Double VHS. I bought from the good old BBC shop. It's Doctor Who Frontier in Space. You're listening to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast, which really doesn't come out weekly at all. But I'm Rob, and I am joined with Liam. Hi Rob. Yep, uh, we've completely redefined the term weekly, but you know, time is relative and all that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we, do, we do try. Yeah, well, what have you been up to? Um, work mainly, um, catching up with as much reading as possible, uh, thankfully being able to catch up with uh, friends and family recently, which has been quite nice, um, getting out going for walks, and also, I've been in the fortunate position for the last fortnight at time of recording. I've been able to return to the office uh, for t- uh, two days a week because uh, I've been working from home. So that's been a nice change of pace and bro- breaking up the weeks quite nicely. Oh yes, and um, still go- still going through my Columbo binge watch. Nice, uh, nice. W- which has been quite good, although. Um, the last episode that I watched was the final episode of Series 5 called uh, Last Salute to the Commodore. Ooh. And it was a stinker. It was awful. Because uh, Columbus, uh, you know, a series I absolutely love. And it's usually really rather good. And on the rare occasion when it drops the ball, because the quality is usually so high, when it drops the ball, it's, it comes as an even greater disappointment. But this was bad. Um, it was just... Because it was um, it was directed by Patrick McGowan, uh, famous for uh, being in The Prisoner, and this was the second episode of Columbo he had directed. The first one he did was brilliant, but this was just, it was self indulgent. The pacing was off. The writing was awful. Columbo gets on your nerves. Um, so yeah, it was bizarre. It, yeah, it oh. was a, it was a bad one. Is Columbo one of those shows that crosses over with other shows occasionally? Actually, it's a good question. I d- no, I don't think it has. I know that um, Murder She Wrote did a crossover with. Um, oh, jeez, I've forgotten the name of it. PI it- something. Magnum PI. Right. Okay. Yeah. And possibly um, they might have done it with another show as well. Yes. But I, 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 that is what I had in mind. I thought was Columbo one of those. No, no, it would have been. I w- it would have been interesting if you had a Columbo and Murder She Wrote crossover, because mm. the the two shows are sort of like stylistically very different, and I think it would have been quite nice to see uh, Peter Falk and um... oh jeez I've forgotten her name Angela Lansbury. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> how can you forget the legend that's Angela Lansbury? Yes, it would have been quite interesting to see them um, act opposite each other. Mm, yeah, maybe in the reboot. Yeah, but I like a sh- shared universe. Yeah, but I did find out. Well, I've sort of known, but um, for a while. But um, they're included as special features on some of the uh, the DVDs. There was a Columbus spin-off. Really? And it was called Mrs. Columbo, and um, as the title suggests, it focuses on Mrs. Columbo, and she's a ju- so she's a journalist, and it 
it's about her doing her own investigations. If anything, because uh, I watched the f first ten minutes of the first episode and I went, <laughs> "This is crap. I can't. I can't deal with it." And the creators of Columbo and Peter Falk said said it should never be made. It was an absolute mistake, and it doesn't count. So it's not really canon as far as everyone else is concerned. But what, what's the connection? It's Mrs. Columbo. Yeah, it's it's Mrs. Columbo. It's so it's, it's his it's, wife. Yeah, it's just his wife. Uh, okay. Apparently, but uh, Peter Falk and the creators of Columbo basically said no. It uh, we don't count it. It's whatever. But it, the if you are going to watch it, watch it for the title sequence itself. It has to be seen to be believed. It's a wonderful piece of nineteen seventies sexism. No, but no, it's it, no. oh, it's it's wonderfully. It's 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 delightful in how un-PC it is. Uh, it's it just, is. Because all what it is, it's uh, you're seeing inside the house and, you know, you've got uh, an, an ashtray with uh, cigars in it, all the laundry's out. I know what you're seeing is Mrs. Colombo, you know, tidying the house up and picking <laughs> the laundry up. And <laughs> wow. Yeah. Which makes no sense considering that... that because you watch it and you're going, what, is this just going to be a show about Mrs. Colombo and how she just pines for her husband when she's sitting in the house? Um, <laughs> but no, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't set up the show particularly well because she's an investigative journalist. And, uh, yeah, but it's just bizarre, but it's it's fantastic. You need to see it. Worth a watch. It's worth okay. a watch. Just the title sequence. Yeah, the, rest okay. of the, the rest of the show, judging from that other ten minutes I watch, is just dog awful. One to avoid. <laughs> One to avoid, yeah. But watch the title sequence, it's fantastic. Okay. I recently watched The New Red Dwarf. Oh, blimey, I completely forgot that was there uh, coming on. Alright, and enjoy it? it. I did. Um, it was fine. <laughs> All right. it, it had some good laugh out loud moments, but um, I don't know, it might be one that I leave a while before I rewatch. Mm. Alright, okay. It was No, it was great. I think it's just my personal feelings, maybe. I kind of wanted Red Dwarf so much for so long and came back to the nine and even though we're only getting it every few years mm. um, I've kind of gotten too used to it I don't know it doesn't seem that special now that you know it's coming back every so often uh, right I mean it was, sort of, it was good though well that's good I mean that's the main thing and uh, actually it's it's sort of one of those programs it's it's quite amazing that they're still making it that isn't to say that you know there isn't a fandom there because obviously there is but yeah. Um, I just think uh, actually now that I think about it the only part I thought were funny um, were with the main cast not with any of the guest cast alright oh, okay mm. uh, oh, one thing I did finish which I'd put off for a while because of the podcast but I finished um, the first season of Picard ah right okay, okay um, and I've, <clears throat> I'm going to I really need to talk to someone about the ending, but um, no one's seen it. <laughs> I'll try and... Well, yeah, because funny enough, one thing I have... Because I've got a friend of mine, and he's been, uh, for the last three years or so, he's been banging on about um, the BBC drama Killing Eve. Yeah. Uh, and he's been trying to convince me and another friend of ours to, to watch it so he has someone to talk about it. Anyway, uh, one thing I have I have done... Um, is I finally got around to watching the first series because they're, they're still available on iPlayer. Um, so next time I see him, I'll be in a position to at least talk about the first series. Yeah. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's, it's not too bad, actually. Uh, I don't know whether... Have you seen it? No, I've caught bits. It's not too bad. I mean, I, th- I think it's enjoyable, but it's... Um, yeah, it's it's not perfect. But having said that, I, I think I've, I've given it um, 7 out of 10. So it, it's quite respectable so far. So, but going back to Picard, um, what's that, do, do you know what um, platforms that's available on? It's, well, in America, it I think it's on CBS, which is the network that owns the rights of the TV show. Um, but internationally, it's on Amazon Prime. Right, fantastic. I'm signed up to that. So, right, I'll, I'll try and get around to watching Picard. Then. Well, it's only 10 episodes long. Mm-hmm. I think... It seems like a good place to jump on if you haven't seen all of Next Generation. But a lot of those first ten seasons of Next Gen and the movies are really tightly part of its DNA. And there is a lot of references there. Um, familiar characters, which you don't need to have known, I guess. But um, a, a bit of foreknowledge would help as the season goes on. Um, were you familiar with Next Generation? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because I remember um, sort of like in the mid-90s, uh, that was when the BBC was, was broadcasting it a lot, and I always enjoyed watching it. I'm not a massive Trekkie, um, but I did watch it and enjoy it, and I have seen some of the films as well. Um, have you seen the Next Generation films? Uh, I think I've seen one or two of them. Uh, I certainly saw the one with the... Um, yeah, I think I've seen two of them, but the one that sticks in my mind is the one where he... He meets Captain Kirk. Yes, okay. And I know that I think some people are a bit underwhelmed by it, but um, I remember enjoying it. I thought it was, uh, you know, I thought it was alright. I thought it was good because um, the style of it, it's um, exactly the same as the TV show. Mm-hmm. Because after that one, um, it may be the one you're familiar with, the one with the Borg. He... Yes, gets I think a, so. It kind of gets a whole new look. And. Mm-hmm. Um, that one with Kirk and it kind of felt like just an episode of the series, like an extra ending that we got after the season finale kind of thing. Um, I don't like the whole um, death of Kirk. Yeah, I know that a lot of fans aren't particularly keen on that, and I think that's sort of why a lot of people feel it, yeah. feel a bit underwhelmed. But yeah. I think and I don't think. Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, it was just because I think it's one of those things where I think that I, I, I can perhaps appreciate that if you're a fan. Um, you would go well, you know, Captain Kirk, you know, the, the original '60s uh, run of the show, and then obviously you, you got the, the movies later on in the '70s and the '80s. Um, you know, that's a character al- along with Spock. A lot of people are invested in, and to have a relatively undramatic ending feels a bit sort of um, underwhelming and a bit disappointing. Yeah. You know, I sort of watch it, and you know, I. I think it's all right, but uh, as I say, I'm not invested as much as I am as a fan. You know, it's a show that I like, but I'm not, um, I'm not like massively clued up on it, and I, I can sort of take or leave it a bit. And to be yeah. perfectly honest, I think I know there's this thing, and even The Simpsons joked about it. In fact, lo- loads of places have of going, you know, that argument of going, you know, which is better, uh, Kirk or uh, Picard? Um, I think Picard personally, but. Picard, okay, which is better, original series or next gen? Mm. I like Next Generation, but I think probably the original. Yeah, okay, I think I agree with you on both those, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the reason being is because in a funny way, I think the original series holds up a lot more than Next Generation does. Yeah. I think plot-wise, Next Generation does you know, arguably a lot more interesting things and is a bit more richer 
in the in the stories that it tells. But in some respects, I think probably more in terms of the production, it's dated a lot more than perhaps the original series. Um, yes, it does seem very eighties slash nineties. Yeah, and whereas mm. that 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 sort of sixties aesthetic of the original holds up, and actually. Even though I think Picard's a better character, I think the original series, I think the that original run of characters are probably a lot stronger and a lot more iconic. So before we move on to the main review tonight, uh, just a quick reminder, we have a great website, cloisterbellpodcast.com. You can find all of our previous podcasts, all live on there. So do keep an eye on that. And as Rob said, uh, all our previous podcasts are there, um, where we've reviewed... Um, you know other classic Doctor Who adventures, including the Three Doctors and the Five Doctors. There's some um, we've even we've even reviewed Fear Her. Uh, if you want to see us, uh, if you really want to dig into the dregs of what we think of one of the worst Doctor Who stories yes. ever, but we have we've fun- even reviewed Dimensions in Time. Yes, we have. Um, I, I think that's probably one of my favourite podcasts actually, because um, we talk about the you know Dimensions in Time and um, the Curse of Fatal Death and one or two other things. Uh, and we have also reviewed um, some early Big Finish audio adventures, if you're interested in those as well. The very earliest of mm. the Doctor Who ones, yeah. So, on to Doctor Who Frontier in Space. It's the third serial in Doctor Who's tenth season. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the stories in that season are The Three Doctors, Carnival of Monsters, Frontier, Planet of the Daleks, and The Green Death. Um, I feel like there's a lot of um, very standout stories in that season that a lot of people would be familiar with. Yeah, and I think season 10 is... I mean, at the time of recording, we have, I think, seven of the Blu-ray box sets. If I've counted them right. Um, And season 10 is one of those. And it's hardly surprising that's been picked as one of the earliest uh, box set releases and season 10's always been one of my film favourites because I just think um, the stories are fantastic and the quality holds up really well. Um, it holds a, also holds a special place because it also contains the first two Doctor Who stories I ever watched. Um, oh, oh, I know this one. Yeah. Um, Planet of the Daleks was uh-huh. the first one that you saw. First, after Dimensions in Time, it was the first... Doctor Who you'd ever seen, is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah, yeah. Okay, and the, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, was it The Three Doctors? No, it wasn't. The Green uh, Death. Yes, that's right, The Green Death. Yeah. Um, so Planet of the Daleks introduced me to the show, and I got captivated by it, and I just thought it was amazing, but I would say The Green Death, you know, so I loved Planet of the Daleks. Look, I think it's a decent story now, but I don't think it quite holds up, but it holds a special place in my heart. Um, but the story that really sort of like cemented my fandom was The Green Death um, so the show's stuck with me ever since then really and then obviously as, as time's gone on you know the Carnival of Monsters I think was probably in terms of this season I think was probably the third story that I saw and absolutely loved that and Frontier in Space and I remember getting The Three Doctors years later at time Time Mouth uh, Market, yeah. Which, for those that don't know, uh, Time Mouth is on the uh, uh, is on the coast, not far from Newcastle, but it's on the coast. And the metro station there every weekend, uh, although probably not during lockdown, but in normal times, every weekend it has a um, it has a market there. 
And they sell all sorts of um, arts and crafts. Artisan I used to get a lot of Doctor Who things from there on the weekend. I got yeah. um, some of the early... Um, the Doctor Who Weekly magazine did a, a reprint of the comics called Doctor Who Classic Comics. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I got a big bundle of them from there. And I remember getting a few Dapol toys from there. And I do remember seeing the... Is it the 30th anniversary TARDIS? The, the, the Dapol TARDIS? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've spoke to someone who's been there since lockdown, and I think you, the bridge isn't open, and you have to walk all the way around. Ah, oh, right, okay. Um, but it's it's a beautiful um, train station uh, built during the Victorian era, and uh, a few years back they they renovated it, and it's it's just it's just lovely. All that wrought iron work. Um, and that wooden bridge that connects the two platforms. It's it's lovely. Um, yeah. But yeah, I remember... So, <laughs> I remember I remember buying uh, the Rescue the Romans double video pack um, there once. I bought the Gopolis there secondhand. And the Three Doctors. Brilliant. It's, it's amazing, it's simply <laughs> the crap you remember. Um, but yeah. Oh, of course, um, Green Death. This is the final run of stories to feature Joe as the companion. A lot of these stories um, in the latter half of the season, um, a character really grows, doesn't it? Yes. Especially in this story, yeah. And I think arguably, I mean, unless someone can mention an earlier example, but I think, but nothing immediately comes to mind. I think Joe's character is the first time that we actually see a companion properly develop over the course of the time that they're in the show you know from yes. the moment that she's introduced in terror of the autons as being a bit you know sort of like slightly bumbling not clued up entirely on basic science she you know she's introduced as ruining ruining a doctor's um experiment she gets hypnotized by the master almost blows everyone up as a result so seeing how she's introduced in that story and then during the course you know you know um you know, you got a story like The Curse of Peladon where the Doctor is more than, you know, it's this delicate political situation. And the Doctor's more than confident in Joe's abilities. are going, well, you, you go to that conference and do what you have to do. I need to investigate this. And, uh, you know, she holds herself up. There's times when even she's rescued the Doctor. Um, and obviously, yes, as you, as you said, we're now with Frontier in Space. We're in the, the final run of stories that she's in. And um, she isn't shortchanged at all. So Frontier was broadcast on the 24th of February until the 31st of March 1973 on BBC One in the UK over six 25-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem quite short, but when you're watching them all in one go, oh my goodness, it's <laughs> a long <laughs> watch. Um, it was novelised as Doctor Who and the Space War from Target Books in 76. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't know the reasons behind that. I guess... Um, uh, frontier in space um, always struck me as a play on space, the final frontier. <laughs> I never thought of that. Now that you put it like, I don't think it is, but now that you put it like that, it seems yeah. pretty glaringly obvious. Yeah. The third Doctor and Joe are caught in the escalating tension between the planets Earth and Draconia, and discover that the Master and the Daleks are secretly working to provoke the two into an all-out war. So as I said earlier, my first experience was the VHS when it came out and since then I hadn't watched it for years until 
One day I was in Asda and I came across the Dalek War Box set as a new release. It just came out. I was a bit out of touch with the DVDs at that point. I don't think I'd bought any in a year or two. But I just threw it in the trolley and got it. Um, that had um, that had reversible covers for the new BBC logo. Right, okay. Had a big big sticker on the front saying reversible covers. I'm like, oh, what's all that about? <laughs> yes. Um, and it didn't really bother me so much, the BBC logo. I, d- I didn't really get why they'd waste so much ink. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, it's sort of funny, you know, when you, when we used to get the VHS... Um, uh, when you used to get the videos all those years ago, you know, um, there the was, logos were all over the place. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, there was absolutely no consistency with you know the, uh, the the logos, the locations of them, the f- the, the font the, or anything like the that. The rotation it, of the diamond. <laughs> yes, same. yeah, it was like either outside or upright or you know, uh, <laughs> there was no consistency whatsoever. And it, in fact, some of the earliest VHS even had, um, especially if it was a double video pack, sometimes had an, had an image. Of the video cover, yeah, on the on the spine, and whereas yeah. later ones didn't, there was no consistency whatsoever. Yeah, in fact, Doctor Who was consistently inconsistent. They should just embrace it, <laughs> make it different all the time. It, yeah, and uh, yeah, and it never bothered us now. But obviously, I think you know, yeah. uh, there's a lot more. There's a there's much more of an attempt of yeah. trying to uh, get the aesthetics right, which when it's done. When it's done, it, you know, it, uh, it is quite pleasing. Um, but there's always something which, you know, I mean, they're trying to do that with the, the current Blu-ray box sets, but there's always something which doesn't, yeah. you know, there's been slight mistakes yeah. uh, already. Mm. And then obviously we've got the, um, well, not obviously, uh, but I think some people may be aware of this, that the certificate logos are starting to change. So when that yes. when that kicks in with an Xbox set, they're going to stick out like a sore thumb because the colours used aren't entirely subtle. Yes, I think if they don't change the logo on the Blu-rays, that'll be very unlike Doctor Who. <laughs> I think, I think I'd I... be disappointed if they don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Now that we're talking about it, right? Okay, when it comes to the Blu-ray box sets, yes. Yeah. Let, let's start get. They've spent. If so they don't much... start rotating at ninety degrees on some of them. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be very, very disappointed if they don't like seriously start cocking things up now. <laughs> oh, it needs to happen. No, it doesn't. It does. No. Anyway. So, on to the cast. Um, written by Malcolm Hulk, known for writing The Faceless Ones, The War Games, Doctor Who and the Silurians, Ambassadors of Death, Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, Frontier, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. This story starred John Pertwee as the Third Doctor, Katie Manning as Joe Grant, Roger Delgado as the Master, Vera Fusek as the President, Michael Hawkins as General Williams, John Woodnut as the Draconian Emperor, Peter Birrell as the Draconian Prince. We'll have a look through each episode, if that's right with you, Liam. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Quick brief summary of each one. Um, part one in the story, it does very well in laying out the formula of the story. Um, overall, um, we understand the fear and the hatred the humans have for the draconians, they call dragons. Um, but we'll learn more about that tension kind of as the as the serial progresses, don't we? The model shot and the ship's interior seemed a bit dated to me when I first seen it as a kid, and that's interesting because usually as a kid this kind of stuff didn't bother me so much, but it struck me as being a bit dated. I guess the model shots were fine, but 
also bad at the same time because they were they were a bit wobbly. <laughs> they looked a bit um, small scale. Something a bit more Thunderbirds would have been awesome. Well, it's funny because um, yeah, a lot of these were from Jerry Anderson Productions. Right. Okay. See, I quite like the model. I mean, yeah, I think there's there's one or two shots where um, it is a bit um, sort of dodgy. I mean, I've forgotten which episode it is in, but I remember that there's a big front shot of the of a draconian battle cruiser, and the camera's too close, and it's like, oh, that looks like a model, and the light at the top is clearly a light on the top. Mm. The... I remember as a kid thinking, oh, that's a fairy liquid bottle. <laughs> Oh, I think you'll be really harsh. I quite like the models. I think they look good. I just think there's one. I just think there's one or two occasions where I think um, they should have been a bit more careful with the, the camera angles that they used. But on the whole, I, th- I think it's one of the strengths of this story. I quite like them. Yeah, I do now. But it it, it always struck me as um, having to suspend your disbelief. You know, all right. Because okay. you, you usually models, especially if it's a locked off camera mm-hmm. and a steady model. It, obviously, a, a practical shots look better than CGI in most cases if the, if the yeah, if yeah. it's done correctly. But yeah, this um, struck me as being pretty bad at the time. But obviously, I appreciate it now for what it is. The um, the interior looks quite good actually. Um, I know I just said it looked bad, but um, I do kind of like the aesthetic. It it almost looks inspired by Alien, if it hasn't came out earlier. <laughs> in fact, I'll say Ridley Scott was inspired by this. I'll believe that. Probably. I mean, yeah, I do, I do think the uh, the set designs in this story are really rather good. And yeah, the, the spaceship, it, it feels solid and it feels like a real space and well thought through. Yeah. Um, yeah. I quite uh, like the, the TARDIS approaches and lands on the cruiser. Mm-hmm. Joe and the Doctor embark under the ship. The cargo hold, it's quite an effective set. You know, it's um, you've got the the flight deck and the prison cell or kind of adjacent sides, and you've got the cargo there. Mm-hmm. You've got um, different levels. Um, you know, you can go up the stairs and there's railings there, so it was it was quite a good set. Yeah, I think um, I think it was, and then you know later on you can get some good shots. So when because it's all part of one piece, so you know when when the doctor turns a corner and then you cut to the camera angle, you know you can t- you got the real sense of space that it is all sort of linked in and the sense of continuity of it all. Uh, you yeah. get the sense of geography in it. It, it, it. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and even things like um, I know this is really tough, but the cell door. You know, just things like that. It's just it feels like a real solid door. And it does yeah, and the, yeah. the railings. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although the um, the cargo, did they really need to spray paint on that cliche space font that says bulk flower? <laughs> and that wonderful 70s font. Yes. Um, if only it had just been bananas. <laughs> I would have completed this story. Yeah. Things would have made more sense. The Ogron ship arrives. I'm not sure if there was a bit of um, bit of a continuity error here or we weren't seeing Joe's perception of it, but she tells the Doctor that the ship changed the Ogron ship but from our perspective it didn't initially well no because I, I actually I don't think that is a continuity mistake because um, Joe Joe hears that hypnotic sound which you know as is later on established makes people see things that they fear most so she so during, she wouldn't know the draconian ship no no exactly yeah. so all what she sees is uh, the ship as it actually is, then it blurs, then it goes back to how it is. But obviously there was some sort of change which she comments on. 
Yeah. Oh, um, right, that makes more sense to me. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was thinking, why didn't she see the Draconian ship? But of course, she wouldn't. Yeah. I, you know, so th- I think the, yeah. you know, the problem would have been had it. You know, had she seen it change to a gr- Draconian ship when she hasn't seen it before, that would be a mistake. But yeah, I'm um, thinking. Hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> there would have been a book to explain that. <laughs> Some missing adventure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. Or oh, Big Finish would have explained it in some yeah. odd a whole story arc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the pilots here, the 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 fear hypnotic beam, um, and of course it appears as a draconian battle cruiser, mm-hmm. galaxy class, as the guy says. Yeah. With neutronic missiles, he knows his stuff. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> he thought he fought in the war. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. I mean, because um... he's defensive of the of the cargo. Yes, I mean, I, the way that it's introduced, I mean, one, we later find out that there was a war between Earth and Draconia 20 years prior to the start of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but an, un, an uneasy peace treaty was uh, was signed and they've sort of um, tolerated each other. But one thing that we're not entirely sure of is the time scale, because, you know, as the, the story starts, it's been established that um, there's this belief that uh, humans have been attacking draconian spaceships and vice versa mm. and this is supposed to have gone on for a certain amount of time but we don't know how long unless I miss something but mm. enough time for um, feelings on the situation to escalate quite quite seriously yeah because they're on the brink of war totally yeah and if it's it, there'll, all, there'll be a new generation that's emerged since the war if it was 20 years prior so um yes people will be indoctrinating their kids with this prejudice, won't they? Yeah, I mean, I suppose in some respects, it's probably, you could see it as, um, you know, Britain's attitude towards uh, the Germans after the Second World War. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, the Second World War ended in 1945, but it was quite common, 60s and even the 70s, to have a lot of, you know, um, uh, a lot of, you know, anti-German... Sentiment, if you like, in popular culture, it was yeah, just seen course, as the norm, and that had an effect on me as a kid. You know, but you had to, you had to understand. You had that Germans aren't Nazis. You know, there's the, you have to disconnect that because um, the the attitude of, mm. from other people. You know, that's especially when you watch movies and stuff. Yeah, well, um, I remember there was a, uh, there was an episode. There was a very popular uh, sitcom in the nineties called Two Point Four Children. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know the episode he's talking about. Uh, oh, where um, so oh, I've forgotten the name of the, Jenny, um, who's the the daughter in the series. She's got a boyfriend, and it's you know it's quite a serious relationship. And uh, the there's an opportunity for the family to to visit the uh, to to see the grandmother who's come over from Germany to visit. So mm. obviously the grandmother's German, mm. but um, the main family's grandmother is of that generation who fought or was around during the Second World War and th- there's this whole joke of trying to keep her away from the grandmother because she, uh, you know, during the course of the episode she has all this, you know, she's talking about oh, you can't trust the Germans because of the war, you know, and all, you know, that's the that's the sort of the comedy setup. So it, that was sort of interesting in the 90s where you had a popular sitcom in a funny way commenting on the then current generation's tolerance of Germany and going look they're not, they're not the Nazis and then sort of like they're just the prior generation before you know having that anti-German sentiment yeah. so anyway so taking that into what we're talking about in Frontier and Space it, yeah it would make sense that 
if there was a war 20 years prior. In fact, because, yeah, you got these these uh, aliens called Draconians, and in fact, the, fa- uh, the fact that Malcolm Hulk uh, says, you know, th- the fact that he, the Doctor describes um, calling them dragons as a rather unflattering nickname. I mean, the inference there is it's it's a, you know, it's a racist nickname, really. Yeah. But it's interesting that even, you know, the, Malcolm Hulk's it, it's, just a, it's just one line of dialogue, but it, it grounds um, the story into something, you know, the, uh, into something believable you know we recognize these things yes um i wonder how long these um these films last through through the generations because when we were raised when our um grandparents parents they could all remember the war yeah and my children don't know what a war is because it's not really talked about much Mm. um by the older generations to them so i wonder how much these uh this stigma towards um, different countries and things. Um, how long does that last through the generations? I wonder. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, because I mean, y- your kids are still quite young, and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be aware of, the, you know, uh, Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan, for example. But I mean, when we were, gr- yes. I mean, we were, st- I mean, even though it was the back end of it, I mean, when we were born, the Cold War was still a thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, I remember being a kid, and be- you know, the war in Bosnia, for example. That, yeah. you know, being aware of that and uh, and then, as I say, more recently, Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, we are aware of war. So the ship begins to lock on uh, and the Doctor and Joe are taken to the flight deck um, where the other crewman sees them as draconians. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see their perception of the this hypnotic beam for the first time. It's interesting that they all see draconians. You think they all see different things. Like it's lucky, lucky for the ogrons that they do because um, if it simply feeds on fear, which it does with Joe, um, it's lucky they just didn't see like the ex-wife or something. <laughs> it must be finely tuned for the draconians. Do you think? Possibly. I think so. I mean, the fact that um, as the story is established, there's a, there's a possibility of war, uh, and the way that. I mean, certainly this period of Doctor Who, because it addresses war an awful lot in a number of a number of John Pertwee stories, and it, it it takes the very firm line that war is a bad thing and war is something that is to be avoided. So, uh, when you've got the story and you know everyone's on the brink of war and is freaking freaking out about that possibility, um, I don't. And given who we later, given who um, we find later on makes this an optic beam um you know it is going to be technologically advanced but also it makes sense that um humans would immediately see draconians um given that that that, that is the topical thing of the time and everyone's on the brink of war and it's a likely possibility yeah. um but yeah as you say it's sort of interesting that uh joe sees um a drashen which only appeared in the previous story, Carnival of Monsters. Mm. So it's, you know, that's a very recent reference. Yeah. Um, uh. But of course, they both recognise the Orgrons, who they last encountered in, I think it was the previous season story, Day of the Daleks. So uh, meanwhile on Earth, uh, the Draconian Emperor's son is present and speaking with the President, mm-hmm. the President of Earth, and, uh, well, the President of the Earth's Empire, I think, is that right? Yeah. Um, 
They're both accusing each other side of the same thing. General Williams is there, and he he seemed to have, seems to have had a part in starting the previous war between the two empires, mm-hmm. and he firmly believes that the Draconians are the bad guys, and what he done was just. So um, he comes across as one of the many protagonists in this story initially, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. At the president's office, they've been watching a news report regarding the the Bureau of Population Control. Um, a family allowance has been increased to two children per couple. So this story does address population growth and population control. Some genuine issues and moral dilemmas that we're facing now and we will be facing on a bigger scale in years to come. Well, y- well, t- you possibly. I mean, we'll see. But it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, because Barry Letts was very much of a... was. Um, an, an environmentalist and t- I mean later on as we see in this series with a story like The Green Death uh, it has a, a strong environmental message as well as other things but it's it's sort of interesting a lot of things that are established in this story and it's I think it's very wonderfully written in you don't feel like it's hammering home these political messages it's all woven um, very expertly into the story so it's interesting that there's this one government ruling over the entire Earth. The entire galaxy? Well, the Empire. <laughs> yes, well, the Empire, yeah. Um, seemingly from Brazil, uh, because the, the the picture that's used as um, the uh, to where the, the Earth's president is, is actually uh, a picture of uh, the Brazilian parliament building. Okay. Um, so either it was just, that looks like it's a futuristic building, will use it there or it's actually saying you know brazil has become an economic and political powerhouse to the point where that's where the earth's president lives you know you've got that we talk about you know the whole earth senate so does it have like an american political system i mean obviously the other political systems have senates but we tend to think of it more in terms of america and the fact that there's a need for population control i mean is that is that an environmental thing or does the door is it a or is it which seems likely given uh, the political leanings of Malcolm Hulk and he was very much of the left and then you've got the producer of the show uh, who was very much aware of environmental concerns but the fact that you've got a government who has dictated how many children a family can have I mean that level of government interference is quite interesting because in terms of I mean we have had countries that have had population control Yes, but they have been quite, you know, they're China, um, you know, they're very authoritarian. Yes, but I think it might become a possibility that would seemingly be justified in one way or another. I think. I mean, look at the situation we're in now. It's completely not the same scenario but we we have to wear face masks now mm-hmm. um just a few months ago um we were told about um our our rights um maintain our liberties to do to travel and um not have this much control over us and slowly the control is justified um if it's an economical thing uh, if it comes down to resources food um, land, money, um, I guess population control could be justified by a government, couldn't it? 
Yeah, but as you, as you sort of hinted, I mean, these the these things creep in, and you know, it's. I mean, I'm not a fan of of big government. Government is government has its place, but in terms of the amount, I mean, we're living in interesting times. I mean, the fact that we we live in a you know, we live in a time where the government has um, has dictated you know when lockdown was a lot more heavy than it was, but. Uh, you know when the fact you know we had a government which said right you're only allowed to you're only allowed to leave the house uh, during this period of time and this is all the things that you have to buy, um, what you're allowed to do, whom you're allowed to meet, how if at all, how you are to meet them, how you to interact. And I think unfortunately, when we come out of um, this whole situation, I think there's probably going to be a revision of the laws regarding um, emergency powers. Mm. most likely and i mean a lot of people are because a lot of people are very um so the fact that you know it's mandated that you have to wear uh, face masks when um traveling on public transport and when and when when you go to shops shops, yeah Yeah. and obviously a lot of people on both sides of the argument a lot of people saying you know you know it, it you know it's it's common courtesy to wear a mask and a lot of people and i've got to be honest i fall on this side of the argument because there's absolutely no scientific consensus that masks are uh, beneficial at all. Um, I actually think that it's disgraceful that the government are mandating that we've got to wear these these bloody mm. things. Um, they, there, there is no evidence whatsoever that they work. Um, and it's also really rather odd with the timing. If you do, if if, if you did generally believe that these things worked well, the government only eight weeks ago at the time of recording. Uh, we're making it perfectly clear that the masks didn't work and there hasn't been any scientific uh, or medical advance in the meantime to say that they suddenly do and the coronavirus peaked in this country uh, it varied in cities but largely in April why is it being mandated now? Yeah, It's really rather peculiar Bizarre Uh, It is So anyway arguably we've gone on a bit of a tangent but I mean these things are important and it's interesting that you know frontier and space um, touches on them. Later on, we'll we'll talk about it uh, when it comes up. But there's uh, you know we get we get further hints at the authoritarian nature of Earth's government. So the the story takes us back into space. Then the Ogrons break through the airlock um, quite quickly. Actually, um, didn't they say um, the hull was made of some special metal? But then when you mm-hmm. see them cutting through really fast. <laughs> oh, sorry. There's something I missed earlier. Um, General Williams says to the president that um, in Los Angeles, demonstrators have burned an effigy of you. I love that. That was a funny line. Yeah, it's it's a very. Uh, you see, I quite like that line. I like the, the I like the delivery of it. I mean, I know what you mean. He, uh, it's sort of the way he enunciates the line, eff- effigy of you. But yeah, it's uh, there's it's this wonderful use of dialogue of you know painting of words you know how how bad the situation is because you know we get these news clips and you know the fact that you know there are riots in Los Angeles where else the story hasn't dated at all in that respect it's you know it paints it paints a picture of how um, how bad the situation is mm-hmm. and how how high people's emotions are. So after the Ogrons have broken out the ship, the Doctor wakes up and the Ogrons have took the cargo as well as the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Do you think they knew what the TARDIS was? Or just 
consider it as cargo. I think they probably just saw it as cargo, and and the fact that it, you know it it it, st- it stands out. Maybe I mean the Ogrons aren't um, aren't renowned for their intelligence. In fact, there's a wonderful line later on. Uh, they have a, in relation to the fact that they've got this wonderful defense against being mind probed. They don't have a mind for you to probe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they probably just looked at it and just went, "Oh, that's clearly something valuable. Let's just take it." Oh no! I mean, in all fairness, they weren't wrong. And then. Uh... The episode kind of comes to a close. Um, the Earth Battlecruiser docks. Oh, they announced that they'll dock in five seconds from now. And all I, of the, the Doctor checks his watch. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know what it is. I can't help it. Every single time I watch that story that comes to it, I count down. <laughs> not out loud. Not insane. Uh, I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fact that I do a countdown. It's, it's bad enough. I, I just can't help it. But it, it is five seconds. Is it? Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Mm, so, cliffhanger, they are, they are traitors. Um, so, we get to part two. Mm. They're locked up and taken back to Earth security. Right, well, hang uh, on. So, sorry, Rob, I've got to interrupt because I love this story, I love the writing of it, but there's one thing that bugs the hell out of me. What's that? It's actually part of the cliffhanger and the resolution of it. Because the Doctor and Joe are there, and obviously it's like, well... You know um, what you're doing here, so you know he's asked the, the the doctor and Joe are asked you know you know what are you doing here? The thing that bugs me is the doctor's reaction. Rather than coming up with a you know just thinking off the top of his head, coming up with a plausible story, you know, like you know we heard the ship signaling for help, so we thought we'd come aboard, but became stranded when our ship was stolen by those who attacked this ship. Plausible, fair enough. His response: Well, we're here, aren't we? You know, I mean, the response like that, I'm not surprised they don't trust him and Joe. It's as if the idiot wants to get captured. It just, it just yeah. infuriates me. It's the one bit of the story just that, ah. But maybe he did just want to get locked up and take back to Earth. Just for a quick ride. Um, <laughs> yeah. While, while Joe has this great plan to commandeer the ship and take it back to Earth. Only for the Doctor to point out that um, that's where they're already going. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. Well it's, sit a, back. it's a great scene. Um, but I just... <laughs> Katie Manning plays that scene brilliantly. And then, you know, just going, oh, oh dear. And then she talks, I, I get a sense of maybe it was ad-libbed or something. I, I'm not sure if it was scripted. Uh. But when, when Joe's going on about how she watched this film with these two big gangsters in it. <laughs> and uh, just John Pertwee playing the Doctor's reaction to it. And then his delivery of when you stop pacing up and down like a perishing pat. <laughs> Come and sit down. Let me think, will you? Um, yeah, I love that scene. It's <laughs> it's, it's great. And then there's that just that moment of silence, and then when the doc when then when Joe goes to ask just just the doctor's reaction of going oh for frick's sake I just thought I was going to get a minute's silence but you know it's it's great it's it's written wonderfully and it's delivered it's performed brilliantly as well I yeah. just love that scene. So when they get taken back to Earth, the president seems quite open-minded, doesn't she? Um, she decided to bring the doctor and Joe face to face with the draconian prince. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to get interrogated. Joe's worried about the mind probe, um, but the doctor comforts her with this crazy story about him being probed by um, the Medusides uh-huh. and blown up, blown up their probes. <laughs> yes, because he told them, hang on, do, do you remember? He was going to see... I can, I can only remember the purple horse with yellow spots. But yeah. I, what were the other two? I always, even as a kid, I mean, that was one of my favourite scenes as a kid when I first watched this story. 
because that thing is is it, is it being serious uh i just i mean i think the doctor's telling the truth is how i read the scene i mean you might think he's oh, yeah. just taking the mick but as a kid i just loved that story it was this um this untelevised adventure which we hadn't seen but we were getting a glimpse into it and it it also just sounds like something that would be written in a kid's book as well but there's something just wonderfully childlike about it and i think there's something really rather obviously it's fantastical and really rather delightful in what is actually quite a um a serious drama and there's this very simple um logical solution you mm. know using using the truth to defeat the machine Yes, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a hidden message there that... Um... Yeah, which goes into maybe why the Doctor didn't come up with, you know, this plausible lie. And just going, well, we're here, aren't we? Rather than... Mm-hmm. Um... So, yeah. And it is something wonderfully Doctor Who. I mean, I've never... One of the things that I haven't been particularly keen on in the modern era is this emphasis that the Doctor lies. There's times in certain stories when he has. But to, to define it as a character trait... I've never been keen on that. This idea that it's somehow set in continuity that the Doctor lies. I think, well, one, it's it's a negative trait, um, and I think really, if you, it it really depends on sort of the um, the uh, the story that's being told. But I quite like the fact that, and it's it's identified here very well in Frontier and Space, where um, you know the, the the Doctor overcomes this difficulty by being honest, and actually being honest all the time isn't easy uh which you know is another thing that doctor who demonstrates but it's the right thing and this you know you could say it's wonderfully naive but i quite i still quite like it this this idea now the truth is worth telling you stick with it at all costs and the truth will win out and i think there's something wonderfully doctor who about it so when the modern era does this thing you know the doctor lies it's mm, i'm not keen on that yeah, but what, does he tell big lies, or is it just kind of exaggerations or lies of omission? I mean, I think it. it re- yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the characterization of the Doctor, because there's a uh, there's a Colin Baker story. I think it's Vengeance on Varos, where um, Perry says to the Doctor, "I've told them the truth, but they just won't believe me." And then the Doctor's response is, "It's something on the lines of, you know, tell something which sounds plausible." And it'll be fine. Um, mm. Which is something that, you know, John Pertwee's Doctor wouldn't say. It really sort of like depends on the Doctor's characterisation, I suppose. But in this instance, you know, I, I, I quite like um, uh, Frontier's, Frontier and Space's approach to it and how it plays out. Joe and the Doctor are escorted around a, a concrete 70s car park before the return to the cells. Um, then he tries to op- open the doors of his Sonic and it triggers the alarm so nice nice um, use of the Sonic but it doesn't work it's not just a bit of plot convenience to get out of the situation yeah and that's another thing it's sort of you know, it's, it's, I think Tom Baker even once said it, it was it was this wonderful thing that uh, the Sonic driver, Sonic screwdriver could open any door in any uh, in the whole universe unless it couldn't depending on the depending on the on the plot <laughs> but, but I quite like the fact, you know, that sometimes you it know, doesn't sometimes do wood. It, yeah, it doesn't do. You know, sometimes you know, it, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, the draconian prince returns to his um, to his suite, and it's interesting that while he suspects that the Earth men are behind the attacks, his advisor seems to be the open-minded one. And this mm-hmm. is a complete opposite of the relationship with the president and General Williams, isn't it? 
Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only do we see that each side fears the other, but um, there's differences of opinion there. Mm-hmm. But I, I love um, how... I, I, I love that scene and, and how it's um, written and performed because they basically then contrive the kidnapping of the Doctor <laughs> and Joe to... Um, to, as far as they're concerned, determine the truth that General Williams is trying to propose a war at all costs. But obviously the ambassador couldn't counter in such a move. Such a move. Uh, <laughs> you know, so he basically tells you know this other chap to do it. Hey, but you know way, what to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed so, you have other duties to perform, yeah. wink wink. I mean, it's, it's just that <laughs> wonderful. It's sort of... Um, <laughs> it's like... Um, the science fiction version of Yes Minister type thing, but uh, or House of Cards. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. I love, I love yeah. that scene. The draconians are hiding out in the the upper levels of the car park, <laughs> and uh, they manage to grab the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Well, only the Doctor though. So Joe meets with the President, and likewise the Doctor meets the draconians. Um, neither will see reason, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Makes his way back. Yeah. Quick as that. I mean, one of the things with Frontier in Space is, uh, I think some people have criticised it for, but I sort of, I'm not really aware of it when I'm watching the story. It's only when afterwards and you're sort of analysing it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, getting imprisoned, escaping, then getting imprisoned again, only to escape, then to get imprisoned again. And you could argue, well, there's a lot of repetition in the structure of the story, but I'm not really aware of it. Because I think at each step of the way, the story is progressing. Yeah, progresses not in um, not in a straight line. <laughs> no, but uh, it, for for a story that spans a galaxy and a whole, two empires, <laughs> yeah, they do tend to zip zip back and forth between the same rooms. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, the visuals and the direction, and the use of dialogue. Sort of, sort of, it's like a sleight of hand. It, uh, don't look at the limitations, just focusing on the story and how we're telling it and pretty visuals and isn't the president yeah. wearing a nice orange dress? Yes. Oh, look, now she's wearing a blue one. You know, it's... <laughs> um, so you are destructed, you know, superbly well through the yeah. costumes and the set designs and, as I said before, with the lines of dialogue because they, you know, we can't we can't show this but we'll, we'll paint a picture. Um, yes. But an effigy of you. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. In all the newsreels. Yeah. Um, speaking of zipping back and forward, um, we take a trip back to the car park. <laughs> um, the Ogrons make an attack. Um, of course, masquerading as the Draconians with the hypnotic ray. Um, only although they kill everyone, so there's no witnesses. Mm-hmm. Was there no CCTV in the future? Um, anyway, they find Joe, and they're like, uh, "You come." And that's the cliffhanger. So in part three, um. The Doctor and Joe are soon back in their cell. We see some actual riots going on on the President's weird view screen on the wall. General Williams and the President talk of cutting off diplomatic relations with the Draconians and using the mind probe on the Doctor. Ooh, a a mind probe. (laughs) Not the mind probe! I mean, the mind probe is pretty effective. It shows earlier scenes from the serial on screen. (laughs) Yes, it does, Conveniently. And General Williams increases power on the mind probe and it blows. So, pretty ineffective on the Doctor. Um, it looks like Joe's been taking martial arts classes because she's got this new outfit. Well, even the Doctor says, who are you fighting tonight? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a great costume. 
Yeah, I wonder how long they've been there by this point. Yeah, I think a while, I think a while. Yeah. So the doctor sentenced to the lunar penal colony without trial. Mm. Um, of course, he arrives, and I'm left wondering, how's he been allowed to wear his outfit for this long, and keep his sonic screwdriver? Well, it, well, I think it's fine with the sonic screwdriver because it, it, it's been shown to be ineffective. He wasn't able to escape using it. Yeah. And the fact that he was able to, you know, he's still wearing his normal clothes is even commented upon because he's just been rushed there. And again, it's sort of interesting that because we were talking about the authoritarian nature of um, Earth and how it's depicted, and it's sort of interesting that this is this is there, and the Doctor doesn't see it as his place to interfere with the politics of Earth, um, but rather. Uh, this nefarious plan to instigate a war that you know that's what he's preoccupied with but the fact that you know he's he's a political prisoner there's been no trial whatsoever uh he's now just put onto this penal colony out of sight out of mind but he's now in this prison it's really where political prisoners are, are kept you know anyone yes, from who the shows... peace party yeah, yeah. Uh, anyone who shows any criticism of government or um, seems to be just shunted off here. I mean, yeah. th- th- you do have ordinary criminals and political prisoners with the ordinary criminals given roles of trustees and treated leniently. Um, but it does sort of hint, at, it's sort of like a prison reminiscent of Orwell's 1984, this setup here. And it hardly paints Earth's political system in the future in a particularly good light. I mean, it's subtle, arguably, um, but it does sort of suggest Earth is run by a form of despotism. I mean, as I said before, any political criticism, and you have a life sentence, and you're chucked into the penal colony. Mm-hmm. And the, as I said, but, you know, there's there's been no trial whatsoever, so that's interesting. So the Doctor meets Professor Dale and inquires about uh, escaping. So the Master arrives with a claim to the Doctor and Joe. Yeah was a good reveal but do you think it should have been a cliffhanger yeah i mean when you consider the, the you know the early cliffhanger where you mentioned where the, the ogrons come along and just say uh, you come to joe and that's the yeah. cliffhanger um i mean it works it's fine but yeah now that you mentioned it, it's sort of like in comparison because it's it changes the development of the story yeah and now we know right or we, th- we think we know finally you know who's behind everything i mean the master is partially behind ev- everything but it's as later on yeah. we established that's not entirely the full story but it uh, finally you know th- this hitherto unknown threat now has a face and it's the master and he's you know it's not as if he's an inconsequential character yeah i think that probably would have been a much more effective uh, yeah. cliffhanger and he's got this whole elaborate backstory mm-hmm um, seeing he has a, this claim on the Doctor and Joe because um, they are, or or at least the Doctor um, comes under his jurisdiction because this colony is now independent as um, a dominion. Yes, yeah, yeah. So Joe faces the Master. He admits being the third party behind the Orgrand attacks and she goes with him to get the Doctor. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting twist on the Lunar Penal Colony. Um, Professor Dale who the doctors met previously, he's presented with the chance to escape uh, with the help of Cross. But Dale decides to take the doctor with him. Mm-hmm. And there's the third guy there. <laughs> he obviously must be pretty disappointed. But he doesn't put up much of a fight. No, I mean, he's... Well, he's clearly disappointed. Um, 
There's one chance at freedom. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you go then. Yeah. No, but I mean, given the fact that uh, you know the, the the doctor has explained what's been going on and that these uh, uh, the the professor and this other chap are part of the um, the same political party, and the professor, you know, basically says to the doctor, "Well, I believe what you said. It, you know, it's uh, things suddenly make an awful lot of sense. Um, you seem to know what's going on, so yeah, you come with me." Um, you can see sort of why he would make that decision. And so this other chap obviously would be disappointed because he's stuck in the penal colony forevermore, but doesn't put up a fight because he, you know, he recognises the merit of the decision, I suppose. So the Doctor and Professor Dale go to the airlock, mm-hmm. um, which Cross had told him to go to, but he's left them with spacesuits with empty oxygen cylinders. Yeah. And then he also cuts off the air to the airlock. This is a good cliffhanger, but yes, the master should have been reserved for this cliffhanger, possibly. Yeah. Oh, the previous that, though, I th- one. Yeah, mm. I would say more the previous one. I think yeah. at this time, I mean, I think this is a very good cliffhanger. Um, or even the first one, you know, when they're like, "You are traitors," and Joe and the Doctor are looking at each other, going, "What?" It's just like not <laughs> that dramatic. In fact, uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I suppose it still works. I think, I think the laziest cliffhanger is probably the one that you mentioned before. I wonder if that was actually in intended to be the original cliffhanger or maybe there was sort of overrunning and underrunning of episodes uh, which affected uh, its place um, but but I think this uh, I think this cliffhanger works very well the doctor accuses the governor of the lunar penal colony of arranging the whole situation with cross doesn't he and the master also accuses the governor of the same accusation and threatens him with an um, an inquiry um, but even though the master has this claim because his colony has this sovereignty as, as a dominion or whatever, somehow the governor has a has a higher authority than all that, because he says um, no, the doctor has to serve his time here. Yeah, and well, I mean, it was he. They are Earth's prisoners at this point, and he's in charge of an Earth prison. So it would make sense that he would have jurisdiction over whether they go with this this. Uh, I've forgotten the uh, who the master's the title of the master. Uh, I've forgotten the title that the master's pretending to be. But anyway, you know, it would make sense that the um, that he would have jurisdiction over whether the doctor goes with him or not. I guess that makes sense. It's a to- totally different situation taking a citizen and extraditing a prisoner here. But I like this. I like this scene as well for another reason because it shows. I mean, we know it, but it's you know what the what the master is accusing the governor of. I think we're supposed to take as going that is the situation, and the you know the masters you, it's sort of you know the, the master has the you know is able to ascertain exactly what's going on and and use that to his advantage to get where, how he wants, exactly like the doctor would do. The master does ultimately take the doctor though, and he's reunited with Joe. Yeah, I think it's a convenient redress of the cargo ship. I think it's hard to tell. We see so many different flight decks of different ships in this episode. It'd be good to compare them all. Yeah, but I think you're right. Well, actually, because I only clocked it uh, on this recent rewatch. So, um, so you know the the main room of the penal colony. You know where the w- that we first see and that oh, yes. later on the. D- that is exact. They use the same set for the governor's office. The only thing that I only clocked this uh, on this watch, or what they've done is they've put um, some flattage 
around um, just at the back of where the governor's sitting at his desk. Right, but if okay. you but if you watch, uh, sort of uh, watch the scene again and see the sides of it, you can tell that all what they've done is it's that set with that new flattage that they've put up. They've just repurposed the set, and I think that's I think that's great. They've you know they've been very economic in what they've done, but it's it's very effective. Uh, it is, yeah. Um, I believe that to be an entirely new set. It's only because I, I, I sort of like ridiculously over-analyzing the story. Went, hang on a minute. But you know, it's 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 still great. It didn't detract me from it. I just thought that was interesting from a production point of view. But otherwise, yeah. it's something that I, over the many years I've because I you know I've watched the story again and again, and I've never been sort of aware of it. And I think you're probably right. I think uh, that the the prison ship. That they're now in probably is repurposed from that set that we saw in the first episode, just with a with a cell plonked in the middle of it. But it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel lazy. It it feels all blended in and a set in its own right. Yeah, I think you're right. Of course, it's economical production. Sometimes they can be redressed so much that you can hardly tell. But when it's not in regards to this this particular story, but when it's so blatantly obvious and it causes a continuity error because there's no association between these two locations. That's when it uh, it strikes you as being a bit blatantly annoying. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny enough. The, the sort of exa- well, I wouldn't say it was annoying, but funny enough, the the example that uh, immediately comes to mind isn't off Doctor Who. It's off um, a Blake Seven episode called Pressure Point, where uh, Blake and the crew have to complex on earth you know that there are many levels and they have to keep on going down and there's this shot where you see them going down a ladder go walking off screen then there's a crossfade then they go down another ladder it's exactly the same set and they walk up and they do that two or three times and it's sort of funny you're kind of a because what they do um to give the sense that you know Obviously, because they keep they're going further and further, deeper and deeper into this complex. But they're very obviously using exactly the same set of stairs, the same bit of set. Or what they do is they change the lighting. So it's like right, okay, now now there's no light; it's all white. Now it's blue. Now it's red, and it's clear. Oh, it's the same set, but at the same time, it's sort of effective. You're kind of aware of the economics of it. But it's sort of effective in telling the story. It's a bit sort of funny. You're kind of taking out the story because you're aware of the production faults, but you're also at the same time not bothered by it. Sort of. Yeah, anyway. It reminds me, um, well, whether you've seen it or not, but the Big Bang Theory, um, when they live in this apartment block, and the lift doesn't work, so they go up the stairs. Yeah. But they'll go up four flights of stairs, and they'll pass through the same set four or five times. <laughs> yes. The master reveals he has employers. There's mm. no clue as to who they are just yet, is there? No, no clue whatsoever. Um, unless, unless you would, uh, you know, um, except on the, the VHS cover, which kind of yes. gives it away. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know at this point it's it's very interesting. He just states he's being employed by someone. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because in the you know prior to this, we've seen the master. Um, work with or or use other aliens like i mean he's introduced in the story terror of the autons and he uses the autons to as a means to invade earth 
or the the mind of evil he's adapted the power of this strange creature into this machine um but this is the first time it's like it's the idea that you know the master's employed by by someone or something is is sort of interesting okay the plot thickens this is interesting where's this gonna go but yes the vhs cover i didn't think of that it's a bit of a letdown when you actually see it. <laughs> you only see three of them at the end. <laughs> oh, the Doctor has a steel file in his boot. That's a great idea. Yeah, that's good. It's Why hasn't that been used since? Yeah, why don't we all use that? <laughs> in this very situation. Wait, well, you've um, been in prison the, quite a bit. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, the Master is reading H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Yeah. The Doctor finally cuts through the, cuts through the cell lock mm-hmm. or the bar um, somehow. Joe um, covers for him for a while where he suits up and goes for a spacewalk um, and wow she can really talk can't she? <laughs> Never shuts the hell up! <laughs> yeah she just gabble a lot but yeah. you know, it's, it's, all, it's, it's all part of to go with the fact that you know pretending that the doctor's still alive. Oh yes. So and, it uh, works, well, it's good. It's, it's also a lot of fun. Oh yeah, very effective. Um, and while the doctor's outside the hull of the ship um the master makes a course correction and the doctor is adrift. Mm. Um, he then has, it, has this great idea of disconnecting his oxygen tube as a means of propulsion. <laughs> Whether that would work or not, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, we, I mean, I buy it in the moment, but it does make, it does make me think, well, yeah. the ship couldn't have been moving that awfully fast. Yes. And, um, yeah, the physics doesn't make sense. I mean, if well, since the ship was moving... Mm. Would the Doctor maintain the, like a similar relative momentum to the ship? Well, it was would he would he experience perpetual inertia? <laughs> it's a question. Oh, the physics. Oh, I yeah, I mean, the, the answer is probably no. Um, the physics of it probably doesn't make any sense. The answer is it's a TV show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are we even here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's the correct answer. Um, <laughs> this is a TV show. Does it work at the moment? Are oh, you bored by it? Yes, I am. Great. Let's move on. <laughs> so the master discovers that the doctor is missing, um, but um, the doctor has now re-entered the ship onto the flight deck. Um, mm-hmm. So the master locks Joe in the airlock, but then the doctor springs out on him, um, whipping him with is it belt or is is tie? I don't know. I think it's his belt. So the Doctor reclaims control, but the Draconian's dark. Dun dun dun! Yeah, I think this is probably because uh, I think this is probably leading up to one of my favourite moments of the entire story. Um, because now you know we're on Draconia, and it's only the throne room, but we're finally introduced to the Emperor of Draconia. I mean the the Draconian. I mean one that John Pert we always cited the Draconians as his favourite monster in Doctor Who. And it's hardly surprising because they're an absolutely fantastic design with the makeup and the mask, and the you know and their clothes and there is a sort of Japanese feel to them. You know, you almost get a sense that they were clearly inspired by a Japanese samurai or something. Yes. Um, and that aesthetic, I mean, it's it's set in the future and it's you know slightly alien, but there you know that that aesthetic continues into the uh, the Emperor's throne room. Oh yes. Um, but I like the sense that you know there is a there is a real attempt, and I think a successful one, of ensuring that there is a different 
uh, culture with uh, between the Draconians and 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 Earth, um, with their different attitudes and sense, of, uh, and particularly with Draconia, this sense of honor and this sense of um, the importance of ritual. You know, and the way that, you know, my life at your command uh, being, you know, a, a son of honour and how, you know, the Doctor uses that and his sense of draconia. And, and in fact, I love this scene because it also has some incredible dialogue. I mean, I think my favourite is when um, is when the Emperor says, you know, an Emperor who does not rule... Do, and, sorry, an Emperor who does not rule deposes himself. Uh, just lines like that I really love. Yeah, because the Emperor speaks with his son and there's a bit of a conflict of interest because um, although his son is a prince, he's very competent mm-hmm. he comes across as the juvenile here because he's he's not as experienced with the politics and the whole nature of um, compromise with ruin yes, he's very he's very honourable, he just wants to defend the empire um, so it's a it's quite refreshing when we get the emperor's perspective because he's very open minded yeah, and again, it's 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 what you were talking about before. Um, you know, we get a wonderful contrast between how you know uh, General Williams in the present behaves, and now the Emperor and how his son behaves. Um, there is a you know with uh, between General Williams and the President, uh, there are moments where the General is much more powerful than the president uh, than the present. Yes. And here the roles are reversed. You know, you've you know because th- there was a moment when. Um, uh, in the story when the president is trying to uh, establish something and uh, to enact something and general williams declines it and the president says you know i can overrule you and the you know the general points out only with the backing of the full earth senate and do you think they're really going to give it to you so the answer is no so in that moment the general is much more powerful here you know you've got a sort of similar conversation where you know the, the emperor's son is basically saying you know emperors have de- have been deposed long you know long before this and then the emperor you know is clearly being very authoritative and very thoughtful but he's the one in power and you know he then it's in that moment he goes you know an emperor who does not rule deposes himself and within that line you know he's talking about he knows exactly what it means to be a leader he you know and he's the one in authority so yes. again you've got that wonderful contrast between the two and um, the doctor is brought in and he tells them that he's a noble of draconia and he kind of points the finger at the master and tells them that um, he tells them of the ogrons, telling them of the hypnotic device. Oh, and Joe is silenced as females cannot speak, which is quite good because it really gives gives Joe a bit of fight in her. You know, she she really wants to be heard. Yeah, but she's you know again you know she's shown to be you know this intelligent, competent um, you know person. Yes. And again, it's sort of interesting. Again, it's that contrast again because you know the the, the Earth's president is female. Here in Draconia, <laughs> women are allowed is not allowed to speak uh, in the presence of the emperor. But again, it's sort of interesting. Again, there's that contrast because General Williams is you know it, it's you know it's established a little bit later on. Finally, that General Williams has absolutely no understanding of dr- Draconian culture. Which resulted in the yeah in the war twenty years prior to the story, yeah. And here, you know, um, Joe suggests something, and, you know, and again she's silenced because women aren't permitted to speak. But the emperor goes, um, 
you know, his response is going, you know, the suggestion had merit and, you know, we, we must respect their customs, strange though they may be. <laughs> uh, again, that's one of those lines where, you know, it's a great line, but I love the diction of it. I love how it's just, uh, how it's said. And there's a great line from the master when he gives this surprising speech about being committed to peace and all that. And the, the doctor's just kind of stunned. He's like, are you okay, old chap? <laughs> yeah, again, which is great because it, it does provide uh, a little bit of balance, a little bit of humour in what's, you know, quite a, um, a serious um, scene. Um, the Ogrons siege the throne room because earlier there was a supposedly an earth ship arriving mm-hmm. and they let it dock. Um, but no, it was the Ogrons arriving because earlier on we had this great scene where the master takes a nap in the cell. And um, he turns on a home and beacon. And um, when Joe says, we better, wake, we, we better wake the master. And um, he says, no, he's already awake. Had he actually had a nap, do you think? Nah. <laughs> anyway, the Ogron seeds the throne room and the doctor tells the Emperor to look upon the Ogron that's on the floor. And it takes a moment, but um, he does see the truth. Um, they're interrogating the Ogron and... They've got no luck because, as you said earlier, the finest defence mechanism of all is their stupidity. And they haven't got a mind to probe. (laughs) Yeah. So, in their own way, they're the strongest of all. Joe tells the Draconians that that they're so humans because both sides fear. So, you know, we've got this more emphasis on fear here. And that's at the heart of this whole conflict. So now that they see the truth, the Emperor's son travels to the Ogron homeworld with them. There's some great scenes on, on board the ship. Joe brings the Ogron a banana. But, you know, it works like bloody spinach. You know, once he's ate it, he's, <laughs> he's rammed that door open. On the flight deck, they're about to cross the frontier into Earth space, but they realise that they're being chased. So there's this great moment with the Master saying, um... No other ship would be on course for Earth at a time like this. <laughs> to which the Ogron replies, Well, you're on a course for Earth. <laughs> well, naturally, we're chasing them. Well, naturally, we're chasing them, you idiot. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Again, it's it's just wonderful humour. and it, it just works. Again. <laughs> I love the two actors. I wish, because you've got Roger Delgado as the master, who's always just brilliant. He never puts a foot wrong. He's just a fantastic actor. I wish I'd be it'd be easy to find out. I wish I knew the the actor who plays that Ogron, because yes. he just, just. But we're on a course for her. <laughs> well, naturally, because. <laughs> yeah, I do love that scene. Oh, I want to watch it again now. I think. <laughs> oh, you know how I said before that I think my you know my favorite scenes in the the Emperor's Throne Room. No, it's not. It's, it's the, this it's, one. It's, it's, it's this one. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes, and then the master replies to um. The doctor on the radio with a bit of an accent. So we can board you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Ogron's now free after he's had his banana. And yep. he enters the flight deck, he attacks them. In the struggle, he hits the controls, and the master thinks that they've lost speed because he thinks they're damaged. They board the ship, of course, they grab Joe. An Earth battlecruiser approaches, and the master retreats. So, yep, annoyingly, they've got Joe. And in a dramatic scene, the Doctor manages to close the airlock as the, as the air is being vented away. Yep. All of a sudden, we're back on Earth, and the Doctor and the Draconian Prince are asking the President for help. 
and this is when we have this revelation with General Williams because he accuses um, General Williams of starting the war but then he goes on to clarify the whole misunderstanding how of course a nobleman of Draconia is going to arrive in a in a, a battle cruiser or whatever but it was unarmed as had um, been as being arranged yeah, yeah, yeah. yes um, and at this point General Williams he's no longer in opposition in the story and instantly um, he's, he, he wants to lead this um yeah, because to the to the overworld homeworld. Yeah, and again, because I think it's it's not really flagged, but uh, I think it's a, a little bit of interesting character um, development here because obviously he it's like, oh, I really cocked up twenty years ago, shit. Um, yes. But of course, that then but then he's presented with the with the possibility of maybe redeeming himself, redeeming himself, and he, he seizes that with both hands of you know leading this expedition. Yes. And he doesn't hesitate for a single moment. So it's sort of interesting. He obviously recognises his mistake, but he's not... He, he, he doesn't display any shame, does he? No. You know, it's, um, it's like, right, okay, naturally, I intend to lead this expedition. Is sort of his, his very yes. quick response to it. He obviously thought originally it was a just cause mm. um, to start the war. Yeah. And the other conflict, rather. And, um, and now he doesn't let his pride or ego affect him. Mm-hmm. Um, straight away, he's he's very level-headed. He wants to do the right thing. Yeah. And logically, this is the course to take. Mm-hmm. In a quarry on the Ogron homeworld, the master enters his humble abode, <laughs> his, yeah. his, little, his little den. Um, there he reveals to Joe that um, he's setting a trap for the Doctor. Mm-hmm. He also reveals, like, ta-da, the TARDIS is there. And then we have the cliffhanger... Of the penultimate episode, the master tries to hypnotize Joe, but she overcomes this overcomes this by filling her head with nonsense. Mm-hmm. And this this really annoys the master. Um, then he turns on the fear device. Mm-hmm. Um, so straight into part six, Joe resists. It takes her a while, but you know she overcomes it, and um, this is great. You know it's, she's got such such a strong will. This is like the, the development we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and it, it's it's sort of... Because as you said before, you know, we're leading up to... The, one of the things we're doing is leading up to Joe's departure from the series. And so her final encounter with the Master uh, is an answer to her very first um, time with the Master. I mean, because she was introduced in Terror of the Autons, which introduced the Master as well. And yes. as I said before, you know, the master hypnotizes her. And that's hinted at in this, you know, this is sort of like referenced in this dialogue where she even, you know, um, she says, you know, once was quite enough, thank you, referencing that story. And it's quite nice sort of like her her last um, encounter with the master goes, you know, I've learned from that experience and I, you know, you can't hypnotize me anymore. So, you know, it's, it's you know, that's a nice little bit of character development. So of course the team sets off from Earth. Um, the president is kind of watching the state of things on the news. Williams takes them on his scout ship. Meanwhile, um, on the Ogron homeworld, um, an Ogron brings Joe a lunch, but she's she's got this great idea to escape, you know. But uh, pretty convenient. And the grounds are kind of made of mud, and she just kind of digs her way out. Um. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what that soup was. Mm. Mm. Oh yeah. Maybe, you know, uh, eat the soup, then dig yourself out. But anyway. Yes. 
I think you can tell I'm hungry. <laughs> it's not important. So, talk about going in circles. Um, back on William's scout ship, they're attacked by draconians. Mm-hmm. So, the Doctor elects to take another spacewalk. And the draconians arrive, and once the repairs have been made, the Doctor re-enters the ship, and and then they get on their way. But, um, yeah, I think... A, this whole dramatic scene again. But yeah, I think uh, I think this is one part of the story that I'm not particularly keen on because it's it's so obviously padding. The fir- you know the first time that we saw you know the Doctor doing a spacewalk and all the rest of it was fine and it was sort of like dramatically exciting. This feels really drawn out. I I mean I don't know whether you agree, but it's 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 the one aspect of the story I've never really liked. I mean as a kid I just thought it was just tedious. Yes. Uh, as an adult, I don't find it as tedious as I did as a kid, but I still feel it's a bit drawn out, and it's just there for the sake of it. It is there for the sake of it, and it also has it has an effect on the later events of the story because we've got this um, this problem with the ship, which is mm. mentioned later on, and then later on after that, it's mentioned that it's getting repaired, yeah, and then presumably it gets repaired, and that's the end of it. Mm. So it doesn't. Um, it doesn't really affect the story later on. It just gets it's mentioned. So yes, it, it could do without it possibly. Yeah, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's it's like unbearably awful, and it's like oh god, I can't watch it. No, I mean it's fine, but I do think it, I think it's obviously padding, and it's a shame that maybe it wasn't replaced with something else. But then what? I don't know. I mean, it's okay, but it's um, it didn't need to be there. No. Joe escapes a cell and sees the Ogrons worshipping an altar. Mm. So what could that be all about? So the guys all arrive on the planet. Um, Joe's, well, they arrive at the planet, rather, in orbit. Joe sends the radio message, but it seems it was the Master's plan all along. So, yes, the, the, the ship is overheating badly because of the sea that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, but they managed to land just fine anyway, can land in the quarry and they venture on and come across tracks from a large reptile. Mm. Large dominant life form. Mm. Which turns out to be a huge orange bag. <laughs> Hold on, we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not. Okay, sorry. Jumping ahead. Um, they're being watched by the Ogrons. I mean... <laughs> They're not really hiding. There's just occasionally an Ogron stood behind them. <laughs> yeah. But yes, then they're ambushed and um, then the bag arrives. <laughs> yeah. God. We'll only I... see it for... We'll only have a glimpse of it. We'll, we'll, have, a good, we'll have a good view of it, but the, the scene must last about two seconds. Yeah, the but the, the, there's a reason for that. That that yes. was that was a deliberate choice because, let's be I mean, it's it's fu- I mean, it's comic, but at the same time, I've never been that bothered by. It. I mean, it it looks unusual. It's strange. I think why the reason why it doesn't work is the fact that it's this idea that the Ogrons are scared of it. Now, I know that the Ogrons are stupid, but at the same time, you know, they're they're the bi- these big hulking things. You know, they clearly stru- the fact that they're scared of these things just absolutely hysterical. In fact, because later on, sorry, I don't mean to jump ahead, but 
when they're in the base and they encounter that shrine that uh, the Ogrons were worshipping, which you mentioned before, because it's a shrine of this orange bag thing. And uh, the the doctor says they're probably scared, they're scared of it more than that than they are of the Daleks. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> um, it's... It's it's hysterical, but it's one of those things where it's clearly it clearly wasn't intended to be hysterical. It's clearly meant to be, you know, it's it, this thing's meant to be absolutely petrifying. Um, it didn't make the VHS cover, sadly. Oh. <laughs> I know. Oh, what were they thinking? But I mean, I don't mind it. So I I, I don't mind it too much. But I mean, it is funny. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so the Ogrons run back to the master, terrified. Then, the monster and... came! The monster <laughs> came! And I suppose you run like, run like rabbits. <laughs> but then we get the sense that, you know, you'll answer to your masters for this. They are coming! Yes, they are coming! Yeah, it's just mm. like, ooh, okay. We're and good. then a ship arrives. Mm. Um, oh, the doctor's looking round. He has a premonition. Mm. Which um. has sort of been hinted at before. I mean, there's, um, in the war, uh, in the war machines... Uh, so this is a William Hartnell story you know the, the doctor suddenly gets this sense that something's not right and he gets it, it says that he had the same experience when he encountered the Daleks so there's something about the Daleks which I mean it's not established that the, the Daleks aren't in the war machines it's something else but he, he you know he gets freaked out that there's this oh there's this horrible presence and he likens it to how he feels when the Daleks are about so yeah the Daleks uh, do set the um the doctor off but yeah sort of like oh this premonition and i love the there's no music you just hear the, the sound of the wind through this quarry it's cold it's desolate well there's a little bit of music but it's yeah. not intrusive and you, i mean even just thinking about it i am getting goosebumps i do think i love how john pertwee delivers the line and there's this little bit of sense of atmosphere subtly building up it's quite nice so yes the master reveals himself above and um reveals the Daleks mm, do, mm-hmm. do we only have three Daleks in shot three or, or four or, I think three or four yeah one or two of William's men are killed mm-hmm. but if, of course the Doctor knows it's futile to, um, to do anything I think this is one of the the greatest um, pairing up of, of villains ever in Doctor Who you know so, you know, there's sometimes there's this thing of I wonder what would happen if the Daleks fought the Cybermen or if this if 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 this enemy paired up with this one or something like that but I actually think the master pairing up with the Daleks is the best ever as I brief think, as it was yeah. as brief yeah sadly it was brief and it's only in sort of this section of the story the final episode but it's just a great idea um, and it's great and imagine watching this story for the first time that it was originally broadcast no hint whatsoever you, maybe you knew the Daleks were going to appear in the next story if you were aware that the next story was called Planet of the Daleks but mm. um, but the idea that the Master suddenly paired up with the Daleks that must imagine the surprise of that that must have been absolutely brilliant the lads are all locked up with Joe now and she gives the Doctor the Master's fear device you know? mm-hmm. so she must have swiped it earlier um, the Master speaks with the Daleks over the radio he asks that once they've taken over, that he be given Earth to rule, and with the Doctor as his prisoner, you know, to witness his rule. I can't help but be reminded of um, how all this does come to happen in Sound of Drums. 
Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. I wonder if that was inspired. No, that's a good idea. That's uh, It's a possibility. I mean, it might just be a coincidence, but um, I think Terence Dix once uh, told how he was in conversation with Russell T. Davis, and Davis had said to Terence Dix that uh, one of the things he really wanted to do and inspired him was actually his the John Pertwee era and how he sort of wanted to do that kind um, of relationship yeah and that sort of that, that modern take on it it also becomes apparent that the master might be double crossing the Daleks of course he is but <laughs> yeah. um, he does say we'll see who rules the galaxy when all this is over you stupid uh, tin boxes yes. yeah <laughs> oh yes as they pass the altar Joe points out that she saw the Ogron worshipping it earlier the doctor says yes we've seen the real thing and of course you mentioned earlier they're probably more frightened of him than they are than they are of the Daleks um, but this is just another example of how fear can control us yeah that's true yeah, yeah. I wonder if this bag creature <laughs> was there to fit in with um, fear or maybe it's another comment on uh, environmentalism Ah yes, yeah. It's like you know, we don't want we don't want big packs yeah. all over the place. It's bad for the environment. Be afraid of that. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> That's it. It's not a bad okay. special effect. It's an environmental yeah. message. Yes. <laughs> big plastic bags are to be feared. <laughs> what if it actually is a bag? <laughs> this whole time in the in the quarry. <laughs> What are dumped plastic bags of all into these big blobby Well, no, creatures. it's just blown in the wind. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? Just a bag blowing in the wind and never gets freaked out. <laughs> that's ex- yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. <laughs> They've worshipped it all these years. It's just a bag. <laughs> so, we're coming up to the final scene. The Master springs out of the shadows, but the Doctor activates the fear device and... This is to the master's surprise, and in the panic, he shoots the doctor, and he's gone for good. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things a lot of people have said, um, one of the things which is a shame about the story is how the ending is rushed, uh, and how the master just, you know, does one, he just runs off. It's, it's disappointing, but for reasons that I don't think anyone, obviously at the time, would have known. I think in terms of the story, I mean, obviously, if you disagree, let me know. But I think in terms of the story, it makes sense. You know, the Doctor's uh, activated this fear machine. It freaks the Orgrons out. There's a lot of uh, pandemonium as a result. The the Master has shot the Doctor. The Doctor appears to be injured or possibly dead. But the Master knows that he has to, you know, he's got no time now because the whole plan's been foiled. Uh, So I think it makes sense in terms of the story. It's a shame, though, because Roger Delgado was a, you know, I mean, not just in terms of Doctor Who. I mean, there's loads of other things that uh, he was in, and, and we can still see those performances. But he was a, he was a fantastic actor, you know. And we've seen it uh, with uh, some of the special feature documentaries that he was clearly, you know, he was very beloved as a, as a person. He was, you know, very, you know, a very nice man. Who sadly had a very untimely death not long after the, the making of the story. Uh, he was in Turkey to appear in a film. And whilst driving on location, uh, the uh, he was in the back of a taxi and it 
um, drove over a cliff and he died. So this is the final appearance of Roger Delgado ever. And so th- I, I think... It doesn't his... feel like the final end. No, um... but I mean the disappointment... So I think I've never had a problem with this end of the story because it builds up to something else which goes into the following story. We'll talk about this in a minute. Yes. But uh, it's disappointing because Roger Delgado did not come back because he he, he died um, by accident. Um, and I know um, the role of the character of the master, um, he'd left this legacy behind and there's been so many people who have came since to play the same character. But... Yep. The, back then there was actually a master plan to have him make one final appearance wasn't there? there? There was There was. it was very early stages but there was this idea that when he was to appear in John Pertwee's final story um, and there was going to be this battle and all what we know is that maybe there would have been this thing where the master dies saving the master's life or maybe he didn't it was supposed to be up to the audience which sounds very interesting but of course we never got that and you know Roger Delgado died very young, uh, unfortunately. So yeah, it's disappointing for that reason. It's it's well, it's tragic. It's sad for that reason. Um, but just in terms of the character, you know, uh, he that's it. He's gone. And when when they do bring the master back, it's in the Deadly Assassin. You know, it's a completely new Doctor. It's a, and as a result, you know. Uh, it's a completely different reinterpretation of the character. I wonder what everyone's feelings were towards that at the time. Well, I think enough time had had passed um, where it, it, it you know, because uh, a number of years had passed, and it's interesting that it was it was Robert Holmes who created the character in the first place with Terry Autons. He 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 writes the Deadly Assassin, um, and because they didn't rush into recasting the role or bringing the the character back, it didn't feel disrespectful. I think people, in terms of fans, I think they had more of a problem with the way that the um, the Time Lords were depicted rather than the fact that the Master was brought back. Yeah, it's, um, it's a shame. But as you said before, you know, Roger Delgado left this legacy. He was the first Master. And, I mean, just out of curiosity, who's, who's your favourite Master? It's hard to compare. I think um, Anthony Ainey was always my Master. So to me, Roger Delgado, when I was younger, he, he wasn't the definitive master in my eyes but uh, you know over time I've come to understand and appreciate that he is of the new masters um, I probably have to go for Sasha Dewan yeah he's fantastic um, well into, I mean I, I love him as uh, as the master you know he, I mean he's a very good actor and he plays the part incredibly well but I think in terms of the, the new ones I, I'd probably have to settle for Michelle Gomez as Missy Ah, okay. Uh, I I really liked that interpretation of the character and her performance of it. I did and, love her um, her story with John Sim. Well, their interactions at least. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was really good. But it's interesting because uh, uh, the first master I ever saw was actually Roger Delgado. The third. I mean, I'm not including dimensions in time here. The third Doctor Who story I ever watched was um, Terror of the Autons. Um, so he was the first master I ever encountered and I mean every actor who's played the part has has done something very interesting with it and has always done a very very good performance no one's ever failed at that part it's always been very well cast I include every single actor in that even Gordon Tipple 
but I, I think um, Alex McQueen should get a big shout out. He's my favourite on audio. Oh, I've heard clips of him. I need to. Yeah, he sounds he sounds really good. And I think um, doesn't James Dreyfus. I've seen him in a few things, but I, th- I always think of him in Thin, thin Blue Line and that, uh, Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Um, I think he's played the master. Uh, I'd like to hear his uh, his performance. Um, and Mark Gatiss also plays the master in the Unbound universe. Ah, right, okay. Oh, I bet he's good. Yeah, with uh, David Warner's Doctor. I think David Warner's an alternative third Doctor. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, David Warner's a really bloody good actor. Um uh, yeah, maybe I should get around to listening to those at some point. Speaking but, of um, Sasha Dewan, I was mm. watching, I was just recently re-watching Sherlock by oh, okay. Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss. Mm. Uh, have you seen those? I've seen one or two episodes. Uh, I think it's alright. I'm not a massive fan of it. Oh, right. Because I think there's a, there's pretty much a little Doctor Who Easter egg in most of the episodes. And Well, this isn't one, but Sasha Dewan was um, one of the protagonists in one of the episodes. I didn't realise until I rewatched it last week oh, um, okay. and he had a good scar down his face it was pretty cool um, but there's a few other little easter eggs in there's one episode um, the Hounds of Baskerville in the opening scene and the camera pans up and the TARDIS is there in plain oh, view okay. for a second right um, there's another one where Sherlock leaves Dr. Watson's wedding and it was um, apparently it's based on the doctor leaving Joe's engagement party in the Green Death. All right. And the Sherlock does use the line when I say "run, run" All right, okay. on the end of an episode, which is blatantly um, that's a trout line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, there's a few other little things, and they're at a planetarium, and Peter Davison's doing the narration. Uh, a few little things. <laughs> All right, okay. Oh, and uh, there's, there's also an episode where the, there's a character who's who's just gone out of his mind trying to theorise how Sherlock survived death. And there's all these kind of theories on the wall, and one of them is a picture of a TARDIS. <laughs> okay. Uh, sounds a bit self-indulgent. Uh, fair yeah. enough for one or two, but it yes. sounds a bit much, but kind of fun at the same time. Yes. I think they've done it, um, Mark Gates and Steve Moffat have just done a, a show called Dracula on the BBC. Yes, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but apparently in the first episode, um, there's a there's this tavern, and it's the same same name as the one that the Victorian Clara worked in. All right, okay. And also, the the do mention um, in the 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 period kind of Sherlock exists in Dracula as well. Right. So referencing the other works, I guess. Oh, get over yourselves. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> So, in the final scene, Joe helps the Doctor into the TARDIS. Mm. Finally, the safe, but the Doctor wastes no time taken off. He sends a message to the Time Lords with the telepathic circuits. Mm-hmm. And then um, this leads straight into Planet of the Daleks. Yeah, I love this scene. Um, I remember as a kid when I first watched it, I just thought it was it was really... It was just really exciting because, you know, you've just finished this really good story, but now we... Um, then you know the doctor's seriously wounded, but now he knows the Daleks are involved, and this this whole thing with uh, the telepathic circus. Katie Manning and Joe, uh, Katie Manning and John Pertwee, play the scene really well. Uh, but I love how it's directed, how it's shot. I love the music, the the, the TARDIS model of it spinning um, away from the screen. 
Um, it's fantastic, and it's just wonderfully dramatic. Um, yeah, and then, and then, as you said, you know, leading in directly into the next story, Planet of the Daleks. So let's see what the listeners had to say this week. Sorry if I pronounced this wrong, but Agador on Twitter said, It's an incredibly likeable old-fashioned space opera. The Draconians are incredibly well-designed, and it's bizarre that they haven't returned since outside of Expanded Media. A real shame that this story marks Roger Delgado's final appearance. I think we're all emphasised with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, it is it is surprising that uh, the Draconians haven't made a... Um, haven't made a, uh, a return appearance. Although I haven't said that, in some respects, I'm kind of pleased they haven't, because they're absolutely fantastic. But I kind of like that they're that they're perhaps a one-off. Uh, and yes, obviously, uh, in complete agreement that it's uh, it's a shame that you know it also marks um, Roger Delgado's last appearance. The Doctor Who Target World podcast said, "Yeah, I'm a big fan of the story as well." Lots of action, lots of pace, and good bits between the Master and the Third Doctor. Yeah, I think that's a good summing up. In reply to what is your favourite Third Doctor story or moment, Mike Clark said, It can look ropey because of budgetary constraints meant that the Earth was ruled by only three Daleks, but Dave the Daleks does it for me. It's a Doctor Who story that deals well with the problems of time travel, Aubrey Woods is great and the Ogrons are nasty pieces of work. Wine and cheese bit is funny as hell. Yeah, I love that wine and cheese scene. And yeah, Day of the Daleks is, is a fantastic story. And I know I'm I'm the same. I'm ne- I've never been bothered by the fact that uh, you know at the end of the story, you know, Earth is invaded by three Daleks. I, it's just one of those things I can easily suspend my disbelief and just go, you know, the Daleks are all over the place. I love that story. Um, I think it's very interesting. And yeah, there's that the problems of time travel and how it all ties in, and it's 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 wonderful. And um, yeah, that's 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 one of my favourites. And in fact, that was I remember well. That was the f- the fourth ever Doctor Who story I ever watched. So the order was uh-huh. um, Planet of the Daleks, The Green Death, Terror of the Autons, Day of the Daleks. Um, so it's a very early one. I love that story. Yeah. And again, a frontier in space, Rob Keeley said, I love this story and Roger Delgado's master was never better. I love the scenes where he's locked up with the Doctor and Joe, and where Joe finally managed to overcome his hypnotism. It's just a shame it was Delgado's last scene, and that the story has no proper ending. Yeah, I mean, again, it's sort of like, I mean, I totally agree with all of that. And as I said, I suppose I get wrapped up in the excitement of the ending and how it just leads into the following story straight away. And I quite like the model shot of the TARDIS and the telepathic circuits and all the rest of it. But yeah, I know that a lot of people feel that it's rushed. I got in contact with um, Katie Manning on Twitter. So, uh, to say that we're going to be reviewing Frontier in Space and I asked if um, she had any abiding memories of the story she very kindly responded and she said uh, she does have abiding memories but not long to tweet um, suffice to say Joe jo certainly squared up to the master so th- it was nice of her to uh, to reply and yeah she's right um, she really does yeah she's no shrinking violent in this story and you know she certainly come you know yeah she does square up to the master 
very well. So, wrapping up now, as a final score, what do you give it? Oh, it's a hard one. I'm getting a bit tired of ranking all these stories really high. But then again, they are our favourite stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, so, at some point we'll 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 uh, we'll balance it out by maybe we should balance yeah. it out by doing and now we're gonna review our least favourite stories. Yes. The real stinkers. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go for a nine out of ten. The mm. story wasn't perfect in some ways. It has some negatives. The model shots let down sadly for me. Um, I know you might not feel the same. Um the constant revisited and recycled sets. The Doctor and Joe do spend a bit of time running circles, occasionally end up ending up back and forth with the same locations, um, considering the story spans a whole galaxy. Was the war stopped? We presume so, but there's more answers we could have got. And what a great story for Joe to show off her strengths. Um, this is a young girl, mostly alone in the story, facing threats. She's locked up, kidnapped, interrogated. She stays strong and positive, and she manages to overcome all this, including the hypnotism and the mind probe. Sorry, the hypnotism and the... the oh, the uh, fear device. The fear device, yes. Yeah, yeah. And the conflict of this story, these two empires fighting ignorantly out of fear and prejudice. Um, you know, fear. Um, I think that's the big message here. Fear controlled mm. the humans, the draconians. Fear controlled the Ogrons. They feared and worshipped... Um, the master, the Daleks, the feared the bag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Joe, to me, she seems like the key here. Um, she's she's like this archetype of how we should all be. Um, it's okay to be afraid, but you can't let it control you. She looked that fear right in the face and just told it to sod off. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. And that's the best mentality there, I think. Mm. Um, so yes, a 9 out of 10. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think I agree with uh, an awful lot of what you said. Um, I think this is certainly one of the be- uh, the best Doctor Who stories there is, and certainly one of the highlights of the the Pertwee era. It's a very interesting story, very deftly written. I think it has the balance of the drama and the threat and the humour and the wit uh, uh, is uh, is very deftly balanced. There's some wonderful, interesting. Um, you know, the fact that you know that you know we have the master and Roger Delgado is at the arguably at the top of his game playing that part. You know, th- even though that you know we've seen the story many times, it's it still remains dramatically exciting that the Daleks are introduced at the end, and that that's great. Love the Draconians, an awful lot. Yes, as you said before, it, it isn't perfect. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the model shots, but there are one or two where it doesn't quite work. There is some padding. Um, so it's it's not a perfect story, but I do like it an awful lot. Um, I haven't ranked it as highly, but it's not too far off. I give it eight out of ten. Not bad. You sure you don't want to go for a nine? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not always <laughs> for um, persuading you to change your score, <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah, I mean uh, you've uh, you've succeeded once or twice, but no, I think eight out of ten is a respectable <laughs> thing. But any higher would be a bit. I mean, for me. Uh, would be a bit too high, but uh, it's still respectable. It's still a damn good story. I love it. Yes. Well, that are, that concludes our podcast on Doctor Who Frontier and Space. Thanks for listening. A quick mention about the website. It is cloisterbellpodcast.com. All the respective social links are on there. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
we even have a YouTube account. You can check out all our previous podcasts on there. And also, would love it if you'd give us a rating. We are on Apple Podcasts, if you, know, if you can access that on a phone or a computer. And give us a rating and tell us what you think. Liam, what's, what's in store next time on the podcast? Well, uh, next time on the podcast is we will be looking at my favourite John Pertwee story, which is The Mutants. Ha! Only joking. Can you imagine? That story sucks. Um, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, no, yeah, well, we will be looking at my favourite John Pertwee story, uh, which is The Sea Devils. Oh, or is that my favourite, actually? <laughs> you mean we've just... You mean this has just been a complete waste of time? Yeah, scrap that. <laughs> um, so until next time, goodbye... Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you to Katie. Thank you, Liam. And um, my life at your command. Goodbye. I can't top that as a my life at your command. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Just... I'm trying to think of another quote from the uh, from the story, which I thought uh, I'm waffling now, and I've ruined that perfect ending. Bye, everyone. <laughs>